We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for quite some time now. If you've been at St. Peter's for a while, you'll remember that we began our study in the Gospel of Mark in the fall of 2015. Uh, and so we are going through it in four sections. We've put it down and picked it up a few times. And we're now in the fourth and final section. And today... Uh, is our 38th sermon in the Gospel of Mark. And some of you on Facebook had some fun with this. Hashtag Markathon, hashtag Markinator, hashtag Mr. Marktastic, and on and on we could go. Uh, but there's only five more sermons left in this series, and then we'll have completed our study in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, you're joining us towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, but it's helpful to know that the Gospel of Mark is driven forward with one core question. Who is Jesus? And as the gospel comes to a close, that question remains at the forefront and begins to have a clearer and clearer answer. And so if you're asking that question in any shape and form, if you're wondering, who is this Jesus? Why do people still follow him? We're really glad you're here. And I think the gospel of Mark will be very helpful to you. Uh, although uh, a week has passed since we were last together, uh, practically no time at all has passed in the narrative of Mark's gospel. We're going to continue where we left off uh, the same evening of the Last Supper, but now much later into the night, Jesus and his uh, closest followers, full of lamb and wine, are heading over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they walk over, they continue singing hymns uh, to God and worshiping on this night of the Passover. And I've had the fortunate uh, experience of being to Gethsemane. Uh, it's a beautiful little garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And if you're a Christian, it's a hauntingly beautiful place, knowing what took place there. Uh, the garden is filled with these olive trees. And, you know, some of them are modest in size, like a good West Coaster. I could hug them and wrap my arms around them. Uh, some, though, are bulwarks, you know, just ma massive trees, wide and gnarled, bending, twisting with erratic branches. There was a few trees that had, like, merged together to form, like, a megatree. And there's just all these olive trees. And so it's no, it's no surprise that Gethsemane means olive press. Now, in the ancient world, an olive press used a uh, millstone, which would have weighed anywhere from several hundred pounds to a ton. And a large wooden beam went through the center, and a person or an animal or a person and an animal would pull this millstone around, and it would crush the olives in the press, separating the oil from the solid material. And so our passage today, it takes place in Gethsemane for good reason. It's a good place to pray. It's beautiful and serene and quiet. But it's also the place where Jesus himself will be pressed and crushed like an olive. It's the place where a spiritual millstone will press down upon Jesus with so much weight that he will twist and bend and struggle to accept the will of God. Gethsemane in Mark's gospel is the place of unfathomable struggle as Jesus takes his first step toward his final breath. And as this burdensome weight presses down upon our Lord, it cuts away any misunderstanding we may have about why he came into the world and what he came to accomplish. Gethsemane brings into crystal clarity what Jesus came to do in this world. And so here's the big idea I want to explore this morning as a church. Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of salvation. Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of salvation. So open up your Bible uh, or pick it back up to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, all the scriptures will be on the screen. Mark 14, verse 32. 
And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Now before we join Jesus in this place of prayer, I want to jump ahead to verse 37 and focus on the context before we focus on the prayer. And Jesus came and, and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came to them a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, you'll recall in Mark's gospel, uh, the sun is already set. The evening is upon them. The disciples uh, had just moments before declared they will never fall away from Jesus. But Jesus declared that they will fall away. And it begins to happen. Yes, you know, his disciples, they're full of good food, rich food. They're full of wine. But it's not just their physical sleepiness that Jesus is concerned about. Staying awake is a command that has occurred in Mark already from Jesus' own lips. Stay awake because the moment of salvation is at hand. Stay awake because what God is doing in the world is of so much importance that you don't want to miss out. Stay awake. But the disciples are unable to do so. See, the Spirit of God, Jesus says, is willing, but your flesh is weak. Your own humanity is frail. You can't do it on your own. You need to depend upon the Spirit. And the disciples, they succumb to their own sleepiness. And then Judas arrives on the scene with a mob to betray Jesus, and the disciples, they flee, as Jesus said they would. And so look at verse 50. It says, they all left him and fled, all of them. And a unique contribution to Mark's gospel is verse 51 and 52. A young man followed him and with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Uh, yes, my friends, we have a streaker in the Bible. Uh, but this isn't like streaking through a sporting event or through a McDonald's. Um, some scholars like to suggest that this was Mark himself. That Mark is just inserting his own credibility here. We can't possibly know. I'm pretty sure it was Roger. Uh, but, you know, we should move away from conjecture for a moment and focus on what the text actually tells us. What Mark emphasizes... Cindy really liked that one. Uh, what Mark emphasizes... With this unique story, it doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels, is the extent to which the disciples fall away. They are so ready to abandon him that this young man would prefer to be naked in public, which in the ancient culture was even more shameful than today. I mean, in Vancouver, we celebrate it. But in that culture, it was shameful. It was a disgrace. You wanted to hide your nudity at all costs. This young man would rather be naked than be associated with Jesus. Mark is emphasizing the extent to which the disciples fall away, every single one of them. They've reached their limit. They can go no further. They don't fall away accidentally, but intentionally. You see, the pain of the cross does not begin with Jesus uh, being beaten. It does not begin with nails. It begins right here in the garden. It begins with the deep, unsettling pain of all of your friends abandoning you, of being betrayed with a kiss. Now, with this context in mind, let's join Jesus in prayer in Gethsemane. Look at verse 33. 
And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Greatly distressed and troubled. Greatly distressed and troubled. This is the, the very set of words used to describe the demoniac in chapter 5 of Mark's gospel. The man who is possessed with a legion of demons. The man who relegated his life to the tombs and cut himself because he was in so much pain and torment. Greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus is sorrowful, but Mark doesn't say he's just feeling the emotion of sorrow. He's saying that his soul began to be sorrowful. See, this is not just a temporary emotional state. This is a shift in his being. His soul becomes full of sorrow. He's sorrowful to the point of wanting to die. Have you ever felt that much sorrow? To the point where you would rather die than go on. I'm sure many in this room have. I have. And yet, if we experience this sort of grief and this despair... It only moves us ever so slightly to understanding the grief that Christ our Lord is experiencing in this garden. Now, I've put energy into prayer before, but I've never prayed myself into a sweat unless the room is very hot. But Jesus collapses to the ground, unable to stand under the pressure. And Luke tells us in his gospel that he begins to sweat blood, what scientists now call hematidosis. Why, Jesus, are you sweating blood? Our Lord, he's not the first person to die for a movement, and he hasn't been the last. Many others have given their lives for causes. We have the story of Socrates' death and what he did. You know, pity one-liners to his enemies as he died. Many others, you know, in the ancient world were uh, crucified. Other Christians since have been martyred and given up their lives and seem to deal with their impending death better than our Lord here. What makes Jesus' experience so much more painful that nothing before and nothing since can compare to the agony he's facing here? How can we say that nothing can compare? How can we make that extreme statement? Look closely at his prayer in verse 36. Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, Jesus, in this prayer, is showing us he didn't just come into the world to die. He will be crucified. He came into the world and he said, I must suffer and die. But here we see he came to drink the cup. He came to drink the cup. This is what's causing him so much agony throughout the Hebrew scriptures. The cup is a reference, it's an allusion to the wrath of God. For example, Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 32 through 34, we read, You will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation. Isaiah 51, 22, God speaks of the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. Or Psalm 77, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours from it 
on all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You see, as Jesus turns to the Father in prayer, he sees before him ruin and desolation. He staggers before the wrath of God that has been stored up for the wicked. Remove this cup from me, Jesus cries out. In Gethsemane, in this olive press, Jesus is sweating blood because of the cup of wrath that he must drink. Nothing at all can compare to this horrific suffering. Now, I understand that wrath is not a very comfortable topic to hear about on a Sunday morning, and I'm about as comfortable talking about it as you are listening to it. But you might immediately think of, you know, brimstone and hellfire caricatures of Christianity, the message of turn or burn. But we have to move beyond these caricatures without moving beyond the topic contained within them. Because if we sincerely want to understand what Jesus came into this world to do, then we must go into this uncomfortable place. This passage shows us that we cannot and will not understand the cross if we do not wrestle with Jesus in this garden and wrestle with the cup that he must drink. One scholar puts it this way. Where God's wrath is no longer a problem, Christ's cross is no longer a solution. Three times Jesus cries out, remove this cup from me. All things are possible for God. And yet this is the only way possible for salvation, says the Father. It's a non-negotiable cup. Why, Jesus, must you drink this undesirable cup for us? It would have been as much of a shock to the original hearers uh, as it is to us. Nobody expected that the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, would have to drink the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath was being stored up for the nations. It was being stored up for the Gentiles, not for Israel, let alone Israel's Messiah. And now we hear that what's being stored up for God's enemies, being stored up for the wicked, Jesus himself will drink. Why does God have a cup of wrath to begin with? Think about it. Please, think about it. Loving people can get angry, not in spite of their love, but because of their love. I love Ansley. When she pushes Maggie intentionally and Maggie's head hits the floor, I am angry because I love Maggie and I love Ansley. God's wrath, it should not be thought of as unbridled, reckless anger. Rather, it's God's good, holy, and pure love burning fiercely against everything that ruins and mars and destroys and distorts his good creation. We can't understand God's wrath if we separate it from his love. It is his love burning against all that is wrong in the world. You see, God cannot and he will not turn a blind eye to injustice or corruption or oppression or evil or sin or death. You see, injustice, it cries out in our souls for justice, corruption for what is right, oppression for liberation, evil for good, sin for holiness. And see, God is not just obligated to forgive, but to make things right. Judgment is necessary, and my friends, we do not want to worship a God who does not feel anger toward all that is wrong in the world, let alone a God who would not act against all that is wrong in the world. 
God has wrath. He has anger. Not because he's an angry God, but because he's a loving God. And he values what he has made. And he values people. And it causes him great anger and anguish to see what has become of all of us. There's a proverb uh, that says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. It's Proverbs 17, 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And we resonate with this. We don't like seeing the guilty acquitted. We don't like seeing them going free and walking the streets without any cost for their actions. You know, when we perceive publicly that someone's guilty and they go free, we're outraged. You know, you only have to think of O.J. Simpson or Amanda Knox or more recently, uh, John, uh, John Gameshi. You know, even though they were declared innocent by the court of law, there was public outrage. How on earth could the law lead to their acquittal? They've walked free. You see, we believe that there should be justice and consequences for those who break the law, for those who violate other people's freedom. We believe in judgment for other people who we agree with that are, are doing wrong when there's consensus. But when it comes to ourselves, and if the Lord judged us and he said, you too must drink of this cup for what you've done, we detest him for it. We would shout, you're in the wrong. You're condemning the innocent. We're not guilty. We're not as bad as these people. Who are you, Lord, to put me in the same category as them? I don't deserve the cup of wrath. I detest that you're condemning the innocent. But Paul puts it very simply. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve to drink from this cup because none of us stand innocent before our maker. And we've all played a part in tarnishing God's good creation and marring our own souls. We all know that things are not as they should be in the world and they are not as they should be within. You see, we, we're not innocent. And we have no, have no right to detest God for telling us we're guilty when it's true. It's precisely our lack of innocence before God that would allow us to detest him at all. You see, it's sin itself that makes us deny our sinfulness. It's our sin that makes us deny that we're sinners. It's our sin that would make us declare that we're actually innocent before God when we're guilty. Jesus, he shows us in Gethsemane that there's a cup of wrath that must that must be dealt with in order for us to be saved, in order for us to come into a loving relationship with God our Father. This is a non-negotiable cup. But how, how, Jesus, can you drink this cup for us? The movie Being John Malkovich is a surprising help here. Uh, <laughs> The lead characters in the movie find a portal that shoots them inside of John Malkovich's body. Uh, so if you've ever wondered what it'd be like to be John Malkovich, 
this movie is for you. And, and those who get to reside within John Malkovich's body uh, remain aware of who they are. They're just observing through the lens of his eyes. And they get to spend 15 minutes in their body, uh, in his body, before they're spit out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike. And it's so mind-bending that one of the characters even cries out, Do you see what a metaphysical can of worms this portal is? When we talk about the how of Jesus drinking the cup, we're opening up a metaphysical can of worms. We're talking about a, a mystery. St. Paul, when he was wrestling with this mystery, writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who was without sin to be sin. It could be translated, God made him who was without sin to become sin. On the cross, Jesus becomes our sin the only word that is appropriate for this is there's an ontological change. His very being changes. That's why he can justly drink the cup of wrath for our sins, because he became our sins. He's drinking the punishment for the sins that he became. As Isaiah prophesies in chapter 53 of his book, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities because he became these things. Now, if we had to become someone else and completely lose who we were, we would wrestle with that. If we had to do it, we would want to upgrade. You know, you're going to lean first towards a cosmetic upgrade. You want to be a little bit taller, a little bit baller. You know, if rabbit and girl, I'd call her. You know, you want to be more attractive and beautiful. You can tell who has lived in the 90s on that one. <laughs> but you, you want, you'd want a better career. You'd want a better circumstance. You know, I'd want to be a little more abby. You know, you... You'd go for the upgrade. But if we had to become homeless or destitute or an addict, if we had to trade our lives with that person and lose all sense of who we were, lose all sense of any good characteristics that we once held, everything we cherished, every relationship we loved, in order to become someone immersed, say, in a public scandal or an oppressor or a murderer or a sex offender, we start to feel the horror of what Christ is feeling. What if we were to become any one of those people on trial and then had to serve out their sentence? Internally, we start crying out, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to bear that cost. Take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Now, to some degree, we can fathom the, the horror we might feel if we came before God and he exposed our sins. He exposed the thoughts of our hearts. He exposed everything that we held back before behind our nice, polite filter. And we found that he was unveiling us for who we truly are and there was no dispute and we were guilty. We can fathom to a degree the fear of that. But then to be carrying someone else's sins on our shoulder as well. Or to be carrying the whole world's sins on our shoulders. We can't fathom it. And this is the horrifying reality that makes our Lord cry out, Take this cup from me. Three times our Lord asked God for another way. If Christ isn't dealing with the wrath of God with this cup, his struggle in this passage does not make sense. 
Mark is telling us that there is no understanding what Christ will accomplish on the cross if we don't understand how it's dealing with wrath. And Jesus declares, Abba, an intimate word for Father. Abba, all things are possible for you. He pleads for another way, but then he prays, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. One scholar puts it this way, the only answer to his prayer will resound in the venomous accusations and the hammer blows of Calvary. We may struggle with the how. We might struggle with how Jesus could drink the cup of God's wrath in our place. You know, the mechanics of it will always be a mystery to us to some degree, a metaphysical can of worms. But Mark is clear in his gospel. As Jesus stands from this place in Gethsemane, He'll head to the cross as our ransom, as our substitute. He'll drink the cup of wrath that we deserve. He'll give his body and shed his blood so that, as a result, we can drink the cup of salvation. The cup that we reflected on last week. Now, returning to the context. As Jesus was sorrowful to the point of death, his disciples were too full of food and wine to stay awake in prayer with him. When Jesus stands from where he's fallen in prayer, he stands with no support from friends. When he stands, he's met by Judas and betrayed with a kiss. He's surrounded by a crowd with swords and clubs and by religious elites who hate him. And at the last moment, an unnamed disciple, uh, who John tells us in his gospel is Peter, attempts to stop what's happening. Look at verse 47. When one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. You see, what initially looks like a valiant attempt to defend Jesus, to stop what's taking place, actually shows that the disciples still don't understand what's happening. As Jesus concludes, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus will go on unaccompanied by any friends, led forward by his enemies to fulfill God's work of salvation. So why does Mark take such great lengths to stress that every single disciple fell away? Because we cannot go where Jesus is going, my friends. We cannot go where Jesus is going. If we drank the cup of wrath that we deserve, we would be obliterated. Only Jesus can drink the cup, and we need him to drink the cup for our salvation. There's no other way to God the Father except through the cross of Christ. But how do we respond to this great mystery? How do we respond to this great mystery of Christ drinking our cup? Like the disciples, will we fall asleep because our stomachs are full? We're incessantly consuming, and I'm concerned about this in our culture. You wake up, check your email, you check your texts, Facegram, you know, Facegram, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Tinder, swipe right before you eat your meal in the morning. We drink our coffees, we attend the parties, the concerts, the next big events, repeat. Day after day, we're consuming, consuming, consuming. We're so full and oversaturated with entertainment and food and the like. 
and our senses dull. That's the cumulative effect of this that we fail to recognize is that we're so overindulgent that our senses dull. And we become sleepy toward the things that matter. We get more excited about a concert coming to town than we do about the gospel of our Lord. And all of this, the notion of faith, Jesus drinking the cup, it loses this sense of the utmost importance in our life. And so if you're sleepy, like I am, and like the disciples are, we have to cry out, wake me up, Jesus. Because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so we have to repent, we have to stop covering up our weakness by numbing out, by keeping ourselves overly entertained. And so we want to connect with our weakness during this Lenten season. We want to fast from the things that are making us spiritually sleepy, but don't let that repentance be temporary. We would miss the point of Lent. Put away the things that are lulling you to sleep, the scriptures say. Put away these things that are damaging the awakeness of your soul and be awake in the Lord. Cry out, Jesus, capture my heart again and again and again. And the promise is the spirit is willing you don't have to wake up God. God is awake and willing. Or like Peter, who resisted the arrest. Will we fight against it and try to stop Jesus from going to the cross? Jesus goes forward as it is written, so that the scriptures can be fulfilled. And we fight against this. We say, as some scholars are saying these days, it's too barbaric. It's divine child abuse. Why would God have wrath? Why can't we just focus on forgiveness? Why can't we just focus on love? Why are we getting caught up in these barbaric ancient notions of God? You don't like the idea of sin, let alone that sin deserves wrath. And so you deny sin altogether. You make sin less of an offense. Therefore, you don't have to deal with wrath. But when we focus on love and not wrath, we end up watering down love so much that it's just a nice feeling. It's just a sentimental feeling. And these are just some of the ways we can resist what Jesus came to do by saying, no, Lord, that's not why you went to the cross. And yet we do not get to define what Jesus came to do. And you cannot stop what Jesus came to do. He still went forward. He still freely offered himself. Do not let his death for you be in vain. But why, Jesus? Why would you willingly do this for us? Because God's love for us is fierce. God wants to destroy all that is wrong in the world and all that is wrong within us, but he also loves us and wants to save us. And so Jesus, he carries such great sorrow to the point of death, even sheds his blood for us. Not because God is vindictive or abusive, but because God loves us. Love drove Christ to Calvary and love alone. You see, in Gethsemane, if there was another way, the Father, he would have offered it, but love knew there was no other way. And so love walked this excruciating path for our sake and for no other reason than love. This is the Trinity dealing with his wrath upon himself. 
This is God revealing to us the great cost to him to reconcile with us a cost that he freely and lovingly endures so that we can be brought into his love, so that we can be remade, so that we can join him in eternity. Tim Keller puts it beautifully. That love whose obedience is wide and long and high and deep enough to dissolve a mountain of rightful wrath is the love you've been looking for all of your life. No family love, no friend love, no mother love, no spousal love, no romantic love. Nothing could possibly satisfy you like that. All those other kinds of loves will let you down. This one never will. And we know that because Christ drank the cup for us. Let's pray.